Good morning. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word, and we pray once again that you would open it to us. We pray that we would learn from you this morning the things that you want us to know, and I pray that we would respond to them with humility and with courage in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Let's clear that throat. All right. I want to tell you guys about the first Bible study group that I led after graduating college, uh, because I look back on it now as pretty much a disaster. Uh, I joined a church here in Florida that had a small group ministry, and uh, I tried out a couple of their home groups with Sarah, my wife, uh, but we found them a bit disappointing. So within just a few weeks of joining the church, I decided to start my own group to do serious inductive Bible study. We would meet every week. We would serve dinner every week and then study the Word together and pray. It was what I had grown up with in England, and it would be awesome. But it wasn't awesome. (coughs) I was unapprenticed by that church. I didn't know my context. I had few personal contacts, and I was bad at recruiting. So we had just three people coming for the first six months. Uh, And one of them was a Jewish woman from our apartment complex who was always leading the conversation off down a rabbit trail. (coughs) Uh, We did gain a bunch more people toward the end of the first year, but I did a poor job of apprenticing co-leaders or of giving us any kind of mission focus. So Sarah and I were doing everything. We hosted it every week for two years, cooked for everybody, and led the study most weeks. We completely overstretched ourselves and burnt ourselves out. And by over-functioning, we did that group a huge disservice. In the last three months, everyone started leaving until the only member who could be counted on to show up was the Jewish woman from our apartment complex. (laughs) And in the end, I folded that group angry, frustrated, and disappointed. I had begun it arrogantly, and I ended it humiliated. As we continue the story of Moses today, we're going to think about leadership and about some things that make for good leaders and bad leaders. We know that in the end, Moses became a truly great leader. By the end of his life, he's uh, figured as one of the best. But initially, here, as we meet him in Exodus chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's really not so great, and that gives me enormous comfort. (coughs) So uh, first, we we see Moses in chapter 4, where he's fighting God pretty hard. Then in chapter 5, he blames God very quickly. And finally, in chapter 6, his faith gets lost, completely subsumed in self-doubt. So we're going to move pretty fast through three chapters this morning, looking at uh, all of 4, 5, and 6. hope that some of you got the memo to read it ahead of time, because we didn't have time to read it all in uh, the service today. Um, So Moses has some really good leadership qualities on display as well. He's got some quick obedience and a good deal of courage. But in these chapters, Moses' negative qualities are pretty prominent, so we're going to talk mostly about those. So first, in chapter 4, Moses fights God pretty hard. Uh, So you can turn to chapter 4 now, Exodus 4, I think it's page 47 of the church Bibles. And we're going to start in verse 1, where we're back at the burning bush where we left Moses last week. And what we find at the beginning of chapter 4 is that Moses is skeptical of basically everything that God has just told him. In verse 1, he says, Behold, they will not believe me, meaning the people of Israel. Um, And God answers Moses that the people will believe him, 
Uh, and just to be sure, he gives Moses three miraculous signs to prove that Moses is now acting in God's power. But even with the signs, Moses is still skeptical. And in verse 10, he pushes back on God again. He says, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, but am slow of speech and tongue. And God has an answer to that too. He says, who has made the man's mouth? I will be with your mouth, which soundly answers that one. So finally, Moses just resorts to one last-ditch effort to get out of it. And in verse 13, he says, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And this is absolutely the school of how not to respond to God. Uh, Moses fights God really quite hard here, and his flat refusal ends up making the Lord angry. So God then compromises by adding Aaron into the plan, but he does not let Moses off the hook. <laughs> uh, Moses has a mission from God, and there's no way he's going to get out of it. Um, and now as we look back at how the story unfolds from this point, and as we look back at what we now know about God, uh, we can see that Moses looks really very foolish for fighting so hard, doesn't he? And I'm sure now, from his perspective on a throne in heaven, that he's very glad that God forced him into this plan. Think about the alternative. Moses could have died 40 years later in the desert of Midian as a poor shepherd of someone else's sheep, and his name would have been lost to history forever. And God could have found someone else to rescue Israel. But I do suspect that Moses is quite glad now that God forced him. He dragged him down the other path, the one that would show him the ten plagues and the Red Sea and Mount Sinai, that he would receive a law that would change the world forever, and he would go down in history as the greatest prophet, prophet who ever lived until the Son of God himself was born. Moses would be glad about that, wouldn't he? And God has never forced anyone to do anything without making them bloody glad he did. Does anyone here want to testify to that? <laughs> If he is on your case about something, if he is calling you to do something, then the sooner you stop fighting him, the better. He is always right, guys. And the person who says yes quickly is always glad, no matter what it is that God is asking you to do. <laughs> we'll talk about Jonah afterwards. Um, uh, so uh, we might read Exodus chapter 4 and think that Moses was humble, that his responses to God were coming out of a humble heart. And it is true that Moses was humble. In fact, in Numbers uh, chapter 12, verse 3, the scripture praises Moses for his humility. It says, the man Moses was very humble, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. But I think we see here that there is a bad side to humility as well as a good side. Because good humility recognizes the truth that there's plenty wrong with me and I'm no better than other people. That's good humility. But bad humility turns that into self-doubt. Where I refuse to believe that God values me and might still want to use me. And Moses has got both of those kinds on display in chapter 4. He's so doubtful of himself and his own abilities that he's reluctant to believe and trust that God wants to use him. So a sense of self-doubt turns into doubting God's word, and that's bad. Um, when I was in college, I started serving in summer camps for high schoolers, and everyone who joined the camp ministry came in as what they called an assistant leader, and that basically meant janitor. 
Um, we cleaned the bathrooms and we emptied the trash and we mopped all the floors for a week. And actually, I thought that was pretty fun. I didn't mind that at all. Uh, but after just one summer serving as an assistant leader, uh, the head of the camp program sat me down for lunch and invited me to be a leader next summer. And that meant working with the campers directly to teach them the gospel. And I clearly remember what I told him. I told him I didn't feel ready. And his reply to me has stuck with me ever since. He told me, it's not your job to decide if you're ready. That's my job. It's your job to tell me if you're willing. And I said, well, I am willing. I wonder if some of you today are hanging back on obeying the call of God because you don't feel ready. You feel inadequate. Newsflash, you are inadequate. And you're not ready. Uh, actually, those are the prerequisites for any important job. Uh, the alternative is, is to be arrogant. Uh, only arrogant people feel ready to take on a big task. And arrogant people make the worst leaders in the world. I know that from inside experience. So it's not important for you to feel ready. If someone is asking you, especially if God is asking you, then the only question should be, are you willing? And in the end, Moses was willing. He was reluctant, but he was willing. And to his credit, in most of his actions that follow, we find careful obedience to God's word. So the second stumble of Moses in chapter 5 is that he blames God quickly when things go wrong. So the people of Israel have faith initially, but it turns out to be quite a fragile faith. Let's pick up the story at the end of chapter 4. We find them back in Egypt now. And verse 29 of chapter 4 says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And it says, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The whole plan gets off to such a great start. And we notice how totally different it is from what Moses expected. Because nobody cynically asked him, well, what was his name? <laughs> they did, in fact, listen to him, and they did believe immediately. And so uh, chapter 4 ends on this real high note of worship, not just belief, but worship, a response of faith in the living God. 400 years later, and faith in God was still alive and well in the elders of Israel. Praise the Lord. So for a brief shining moment, leadership is made to look so easy, isn't it? You go, you obey, you say what God told you to say, and the people you go to believe and they worship. No problem. But then comes chapter 5, and uh, it all goes pear-shaped. Um, emboldened by the faith of Israel, Moses and Aaron cruise on into Pharaoh's palace, and they bluntly demand, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, No. <laughs> chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh takes the fight to Moses, and things get much worse for Israel before they get better. Pharaoh then cracks the whip, and he demands even more work from his Hebrew slaves. Make bricks, but now get your own straw. So now the task becomes impossible, and when the Hebrew slaves fail to do it, their foremen are beaten, 
and that really drives all the worship right out of them. Down in verse 21 of chapter 5, the Hebrew foremen end up cursing Moses and Aaron. They say, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. These are fighting words, and it really rattles Moses when they say this, because right away, his own faith in God fails, and he turns around and accuses God. This is down in chapter 5, verse 22. He, Moses says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Wow. Duck the lightning. Uh, Moses gave up on God real quick, didn't he? Um, and that's how chapter 5 ends, on that sour note of defeat. After the early flower of faith and worship has been crushed instantly by harsh treatment. The newly established leader falls down at the first hurdle. And we all know what happens next in the story. We know that it gets really good after this. But let's not just breeze over this moment of despair where everything looks so bleak and depressing. The people follow God. They listen to his word. They believe. They worship. And right away, things get worse before they get better. We've got to see that as a pattern, that that sometimes is what happens. And it gets still worse for the people in chapter 6. So what happens next is that God presses in with Moses. He reasserts his credentials and his promises. He speaks beautiful words to Moses at the beginning of chapter 6. And God is able to restore Moses' faith. He gets Moses back with the program. Well, then Moses goes back to the people in chapter 6, verse 9, uh, and we read this. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. These are such sad words. This is now a crisis. Here we bump into just a very serious symptom of suffering, where extended suffering has worn a person down from discouragement to depression to despair and finally to having a broken spirit. It's a sorry state. You won't listen to anything hopeful anymore. You can no longer believe in anything good or that anything will change. And you won't listen to anyone who tries to bring you good news. You have a broken spirit. And I've seen some of you here in that condition from time to time. And I've been in that condition before myself. And I know how dark it is. You can't easily be talked out of it. Even Moses could come to you uh, and not talk you out of it. He could stand there turning his staff into a snake. And it wouldn't make any difference. So what can we say to people in that condition who have a broken spirit, like the people we meet in Exodus 6 verse 9? Maybe we can't say much that will really change their hearts because what solves it next for them isn't words at all, it's actions. God acts decisively on their behalf with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and he succeeds in creating a faith in Israel that isn't fragile any longer but is strong and deep and lasting. But I kind of do want to say that one thing we could say to those despairing people with broken spirits as we meet them in chapter 6, and this really might not help them at the time, but it is true. One thing we could tell them is that they're wrong. I mean, objectively wrong. Despair is wrong. Faithlessness 
is wrong. It's understandable, but it's just not in line with the truth. Despair is actually built on a fantasy and a lie. It's a lie that had been deliberately foisted on these people by a tyrant who was not able to sustain it, who was not able to own their lives or to hold them in bondage forever by a pharaoh who was about to get his butt kicked. And your despair is similarly wrong. It's just objectively wrong. It's not the truth. No one owns your life but God, your Father, and He is good. And He will turn your mourning into dancing. And later, while you're dancing, you don't want to feel like an idiot for all those years you spent disbelieving Him and believing the lie of despair. We are blessed with the testimony of Exodus that our God can do anything. And here in Exodus, his plans survive despite all the mistakes that Moses made. We know that God chooses to raise up leaders to fulfill his plans in the world rather than just doing it himself. We also see here that God's plans are not jeopardized by the weaknesses of his leaders. Praise the Lord. That is a glorious truth that enables me to stand up here and enables all of us to step up and be leaders. If God is calling you to a task, then that task is going to succeed, whatever it is, despite you. (laughs) Even though you will make all kinds of mistakes along the way. Moses blows it multiple times in these chapters, even though he's one of the greatest heroes of history. The Bible is not an epic poem. It's not afraid to show all the times its heroes have clay feet. Going back to chapter 4, we see that Moses almost dies because of disobedience to God's covenant, because he hadn't circumcised his own sons. This is in chapter 4, starting at verse 24. Moses was on his way to Egypt, and God met him and sought to put him to death. And it took his wife Zipporah stepping in to save the day. This is a bit of a strange little passage, and some commentators scratched their heads over it. Um, But it seems uh, that what happened was that Moses had consciously neglected to circumcise his own boys after they were born, which was a betrayal of God's covenant with Abraham. His wife Zipporah was a Midianite. She was not an Israelite. And Moses was living as an exile. So maybe what was going on was that just he, he preferred not to bother even identifying his sons with the Hebrew people. We're going to live as Midianites now. But that was a profound disobedience to God, and it was worthy of death in an appointed Hebrew leader. Um, And what's great is that it's Zipporah who steps in and rescues her husband here. She solves the problem. And I think when she performs the circumcision and uh, calls herself a bridegroom of blood, what she's really doing is making a statement about their family that's similar to Ruth's statement to Naomi, when Ruth said, your people will be my people and your God my God. So Zipporah is realigning their whole family with Abraham by circumcising the boys herself. And her bridegroom of blood statement shows the depth of her own personal realignment. So this event is thrown into chapter 4 quite briefly, but it wounds Moses very deeply. It deals yet another serious blow to his own self-confidence because then twice in chapter 6, Moses complains to God that he is a man of uncircumcised lips surely coming from this little story. Um, Verse 12, Moses says, this is chapter 6, verse 12, How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
And then again in verse 30, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So chapter 5 ended with Moses blaming God. And now chapter 6 ends on this forlorn and dejected note. Moses is still sore from how near he came to death, and he's still skeptical of God's plan in choosing him at all. So Moses is in a pretty sorry state by the end of 6. And then there's another serious mistake that Moses makes in these chapters, uh, because when he goes in to see Pharaoh, uh, he really mangles God's message pretty badly. Um, God's instructions, if we look back at the burning bush sequence, were first of all to take the elders of Israel with him in to see Pharaoh, and to clearly state this message that we found in chapter 4, Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's a really striking and severe warning that God tells Moses to deliver in chapter 4, verse 23, But we never hear those words from Moses when he goes into Pharaoh. Instead, Moses appears before Pharaoh in chapter 5 without the elders of Israel. And he says to Pharaoh in verse 3, Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. No, 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 that's completely wrong. It's not Israel that should be afraid of God. It's Pharaoh who should be afraid of God. God has made a direct and overt threat to Pharaoh's son's life. And Moses just totally pulls that punch. He fails to warn him about the real and imminent danger. And that's really a great unkindness to Pharaoh, isn't it? When the grace of God would have warned him properly. So all in all, these chapters are not Moses' finest hour. And it reminds us that as great as Moses was, he was a flawed leader, and we still need a savior even mightier than Moses. So our question is, where is Jesus in these chapters? So far in Exodus, we've seen Jesus mostly in his similarity to Moses through Exodus, um, but today it's mostly in contrast. Moses was eventually and reluctantly obedient to God's call. He was sloppy on the details, and he quickly lost heart and turned on God when the going got tough. In contrast, Jesus was quickly and zealously obedient to his father, down to the very last detail, and he never lost his nerve, even on crucifixion day. The good news that Moses brought to Israel was easily stolen away by suffering. But I think, as a general pattern, we see, in contrast, that the good news that Jesus brings people is pretty much immune to suffering. Uh, What we see in the Gospels is that while Jesus walked on earth, it was the crowds of poor and sick and downtrodden people who consistently came to him, and they consistently went on their way rejoicing. Sometimes he had changed their situation, and sometimes they, they just heard him bring good news, and they went on their way rejoicing. Then after Jesus ascended into heaven, his apostles were filled with unquenchable joy even as they face stonings and jail time and death in the Colosseum. And even to this day, the followers of Jesus around the world have a faith and confidence and joy that the worst persecutions in the world cannot take away. And it rests on our knowledge that God's firstborn son has been given for our sake. So God warned Pharaoh to release Israel, his firstborn son, or God would kill 
Pharaoh's firstborn son, which is a trade of vengeance. But now we have been freed by a much more powerful trade of mercy. We have been released by the gift of Jesus, God's eternal son, his life given up for ours. And when we know that our lives have been purchased by his blood, all our clumsy mistakes and deliberate sins are covered by his all-encompassing grace and forgiveness. Only when we know that will we have the confidence to say yes to God in whatever he asks of us. We'll be free from both the arrogance that would poison our leadership and the self-doubt that dogged Moses. We'll be confident that God is mighty and he will succeed in everything he plans to do. And all he needs from us is our willingness. Amen.